In all areas of life, there are certain fundamentals that must be observed. And we know with the fundamentals that when you get away from them, sooner or later, you're bound to fail. Right? This applies to relationships, this applies to jobs, to hobbies, almost anything else you can think of. Right? Your, your educational fundamentals are reading, writing, and arithmetic. Your, your marriage fundamentals are strong communication. Your nutrition fundamentals, meat and potatoes. <laughs> your football fundamentals are blocking and tackling. Your piano fundamentals, get back to the scales and the triads. Your, your theater fundamentals come back to basically acting and reacting. And like a, a businessman told me at one point, the fundamentals of business quotes that old Bible verse that revenue covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> well, maybe it's love covers a multitude of sins, but revenue does help. That's one of the fundamentals of the business world. You've got to generate revenue. These are the fundamentals, and we can apply them to almost any aspect of our life. You've got to cover these things. And when we get away from the fundamentals, we know that things tend to go awry. And in the pain that results, it pushes us back to the fundamentals. We say, where did I lose track of the things I already knew I was supposed to be doing? Right? That's kind of what happens. We step back, review, where did I get off the trail, and let's get back on the right path. This week's passage gives us a series of fundamentals for discipleship. That's why it's called Discipleship Fundamentals there on the title. Sometimes fundamentals aren't the most flashy things you've ever seen. You want to work on trick plays if you're a football team, and it's better to work on just tackling the guy when you meet him out in, you know, the flat when he's running for a touchdown. But you got to get back to the fundamentals because they matter. And these discipleship fundamentals are critical for us as a church to think about because when each member of Parkside embraces these five discipleship fundamentals that we're going to talk about this morning, what we're going to see in our church is a culture of discipleship that grows. This is where we're going as a church, to build and to grow and further enhance and develop a culture of discipleship. But I want to remind you that this sermon series in First and Second Timothy directly flows from our strategic planning as pastors. We were praying, seeking the face of God and the hand of God to lead us forward. And as we were praying six, eight months ago over this, we sensed him leading, we must double down on a culture of discipleship where it's normal for Christians to be making disciples, discipling those who don't yet know Christ into the faith, finding those who are Christians, discipling them deeper into their faith and helping them to reproduce and multiply as believers. And last week, as we kicked off the series, we saw the core truth that disciples make disciples. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We define discipling as this. We said it's simply doing intentional spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. It's not a complicated thing. It can be uh, sitting down to read the Bible together, or it can be sitting down to fold laundry together and hear how someone is doing. But if you are doing intentional spiritual good to help someone follow Jesus, you are discipling them or being discipled by them. Now, I hope since last Sunday, you've taken action on that phrase, that sermon, that disciples make disciples. And it, friend, frankly, if, if you haven't already, I hope you'll just jot a quick note in your notes. Like, you know what? I had a crazy week. Some stuff came up. That's really important that disciples make disciples. And I want to find somebody that I can pour into spiritually. I'm going to pursue that this week because it's critical for all Christians. 
But today, what we're going to do is we're going to build on that core truth that disciples make disciples. We're going to look at five discipleship fundamentals. Let's jump right into it here then from 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. The first fundamental for disciples is this. Disciples protect doctrine. Disciples protect doctrine. Now look back at your copy of God's Word. We'll go back to it frequently, so I hope you'll keep it open. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Here's where we see this fundamental from the passage. As I urged you... When I was going to Macedonia, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. As you read that, right off the bat, we notice that the first phrase is in the past tense, as I previously urged you. He's saying, Timothy, this has been an ongoing issue. In fact, I told you to stay at Ephesus for this very reason. And also notice this. This is the very first thing in the letter that Paul says after the introductions. Like, this is a highly urgent thing. Timothy, good to see you. How's it going? Bam, right to the point. You've got to protect doctrine here, he says. It's a high importance. And it's a, it's a matter that escalates if you've only got one or two people who care about doctrine. Because then you've got the opportunity for false doctrine to grow in the rest of the church. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, this really matters not just for the pastors, not just for people doing teaching, but for the whole church, for all disciples to protect sound doctrine. Say it this way, it's absolutely imperative for those who claim the name of Christ to be instructed in the words of Christ. They go together. And when Paul was writing uh, in the city of Ephesus some years prior, Acts chapter 20, we read of this, he was about to leave, and Paul warns verbally to Timothy and the other people in Ephesus, he says, hey, pay attention, look out, false teaching will arise from within. That's oftentimes not how we expect it in the West. We think, oh, look for the false teachers on TV. Look for the false teachers on the East Coast or the West Coast. Look for the false teachers here or there. And Paul says, no, no, false teaching usually arises from within. So be on your guard. Protect sound doctrine. Be like the Berean church, Acts 11, where they are commended for searching the Scriptures day after day to see if the things they were being taught were actually true. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do here. And from a pastoral standpoint, this is part of the reason that I believe expository preaching should be the regular diet of the church. It's not to say there's no room for topical sermons. I think those are helpful and they have their place. But in expository preaching, we let the word of God drive where we're going. It sets the agenda for what we talk about. And week after week after week, it helps us to stay grounded in sound doctrine. Now, Look back at verse 3 with me. I want you to see the very last phrase of verse 3, the last two words. See what that says? It says, any different doctrine. Charge them not to teach a different doctrine. In other words, Paul has laid out, here are the truths of the gospel. There's a standard of doctrinal truth that's previously been established. Charge these false teachers not to deviate from that. And it's important to notice because sometimes you hear, well, the church didn't have a set of doctrinal truths until two, three, four hundred years later. And these gospel ideas about who Jesus was, that was later inventions. 
And here you have in the first century, Paul writing, saying, no, no, you've already got the core established. Don't deviate from it. This isn't a later invention of the church. This was understood from the very beginning, core teaching of who Jesus is and what he came to do to save sinners from their sins. Now, maybe when we start to talk about protecting sound doctrine, you start to wonder, well, what were the particular issues at play in Ephesus? Like, what were their heresies? What were their deviations? The passage calls them myths and endless genealogies. What exactly were those? And the short answer is we don't know precisely what they are, but we do know a little bit. So we know Ephesus is a very diverse city. It's, it's a port city. And so you're going to have a lot of Jewish influences and a lot of Greek influences. And so you likely have a Jewish flavor where you have teachers who love the Old Testament, who want to have endless speculations about the genealogy means this, the genealogies mean that. They're zeroing in on very minor aspects of the law and kind of making that the major thing. But you've also got Greek aspects getting kind of worked in. And some of those were justifying immoral living to say, well, the law actually is permissive of this or of that. And others went the other end of what we might call legalism, of saying, no, to be a true Christian is actually you've got to uphold this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, this rule, and this rule that aren't really in the Bible. I just think it's the way we ought to do it. And so I'm going to tell you, you have to do this as well. You can't eat these foods. You can't drink these drinks. You can't watch these shows. It's a sin for you to go to watch a movie. It's these kinds of things. And so you've got a whole broad array of endless myths and genealogies. And what the context of the passage indicates, and I'll show you this in just a second, is that as they begin to develop these unhealthy obsessions, it ends up eventually compromising their teaching on the core truths of the gospel. They don't start there, but they end there. Now let me show you in the passage where that's at. Look back at verses, uh, the end of verse 10 and end of verse 11. Paul's kind of summing up the argument, and he says, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Just, okay, eventually this started to compromise the gospel. And then drop your eyes down to the end of the chapter, verse 20. And what Paul does is he names some of these false teachers. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He said, these guys are speaking blasphemy. It starts with a kind of minor obsession over small things, and it ends up distorting the core truths of the gospel. Disciples must protect doctrine. In Jude's letter, chapter 1 and verse 3, we're, we're told, I think we see it on the screen here, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a command, contend for it. The fact of the matter is some believers in Ephesus stopped contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They didn't start by rejecting the main thing, but as they made minor things major things, as they made peripheral things central things, they got distracted and ended up teaching a false gospel. So it's important that we note that an unhealthy obsession with an interesting topic, but not a core topic, can lead us away from the gospel. These guys ended up losing interest in the core doctrines because they found something else more exciting. They lost interest in making disciples because it was more fun to speculate about the Old Testament. They lost sight of the main thing. Friends, you have to understand, as a disciple of Jesus, one of the core fundamentals for you to do is to protect sound doctrine. 
That's a fundamental that's given to all Christians at all times. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Second fundamental of discipleship. Disciples pursue love. Disciples pursue love. We continue in verse 5. Here's what Paul writes. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's as if Paul opens in a somewhat negative way. Timothy, correct this false teaching. These guys have gone off the rails. But then he comes back in verse 5 and he clarifies, okay, so what is it that we're actually after? The point isn't just correction so that you can play whack-a-mole with everybody in your life, but there's actually a positive vision that we're pursuing here. What's the goal? Love is the goal. Romans 13, 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus in Matthew 22 says, love God, love neighbor. This is what the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets hang on these things, that you are growing in love for God and your fellow man. It's, it's almost as if Paul says, love is the destination. So let's put the destination in your GPS, and then let's see what are the roads that pop up as to how to get there. And in verse 5, you see three of the roads that take you to the destination of love. We see a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Now, all three of those things you'll notice are internal realities, Right? Nobody in the pew next to you can look over and tangibly observe pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. But they drive your love, which does show up in a tangible way. It's important to recognize this, though, because love can show up in a variety of different ways, right? And it looks different in different contexts. So just for example, it might be loving in one context to gently give someone a second or third or fifth or sixth chance. But that also might be unloving and absolutely enabling behavior. Or in another context, it might be loving to speak some difficult truth in a direct way to someone. Or it might also be harsh and overbearing. So how do you know exactly which is which, right? Because to be, the loving thing looks different in different contexts. And it's why it's so important that we recognize the importance of internal, prayerful reflection as we seek to grow in love to say, what's the motive under this? Is this action I'm about to undertake, does it flow from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? Well, if you've wondered how to take the words of Scripture and pray them back to God, you've heard people talk about that. They say, Justin, I, I don't really know how to pray the Bible. That seems kind of weird. These passages seem goofy. I don't know how you turn that into actual prayer. First Timothy 1.5 is a phenomenal passage for you to make a daily prayer. Lord, help my aim to be to grow in love above all else. Help it to flow out of a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I know the destination. Lord, keep me on the right roads to get me to that destination. I need your help. If the first discipleship fundamental, protect doctrine, says that the truths of the gospel matter, then the second fundamental says that the truths of the gospel must change your life. That gospel doctrine must produce a gospel culture to recognize that love is the mark of maturity. Ephesians 3 says that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. 
And Paul's prayer is that we would actually come to know the depth of God's love for us. You see, it's easy to see a lot of other things as the marks of maturity, isn't it? Easy to see other things as the marks of maturity. And Paul says, no, no, love is the mark of a mature believer. So friends, we need to understand this. The tenor of our love for the Lord and the tenderness of our fellowship together are not optional add-ons. The love and unity within the body, it's not icing on the cake that you hope can be there, but if you run out of time before the party, it's okay to leave it behind because you still brought the cake. That's not how love is in the Christian walk. It's absolutely essential. Gospel doctrine must produce a gospel culture. And a church that genuinely loves each other puts the power of the gospel on display in real, tangible, irresistible ways that say, wow, something is different there. Surely God is in their midst. It's when a church is marked more by warm hugs and gladness to see one another in tears of sorrow and tears of joy, whatever's coming along, where you see, wow, surely these people love each other with a deep Selfless love. Discipleship fundamental number two. Disciples pursue love. And it's something we all must pursue and consider, is this an area where I need to get back to the fundamentals of following Jesus? I've lost sight of the fact that love is the mark of maturity. That's our second fundamental. Third fundamental this morning. Disciples avoid ditches. Disciples avoid ditches. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here we are in verses 6 and 7. Here's what Paul says. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This one will likely be the the shortest point of all five, so don't snooze and miss what I'm about to say here. What he says is when you lose sight of love being the main thing, you easily wander into vain discussion. Now, when he says vain discussion, he's not talking like utter stupidity discussion, like is the sky really blue, is two plus two really four? Like those aren't the vain discussions he's, he's talking about. No, what he's saying is, maybe think more this way, fruitless theological discussion that distracts me from making disciples. Critical to no sound doctrine, yes, but ongoing speculations about secondary, tertiary, or whatever comes after tertiary issues, ones that aren't very important, have a way of getting you in the ditch and missing what God has called you to do. Be faithful to the gospel, be fruitful in multiplying, and vain discussion can keep you from both of those. So practically speaking, this might be end times predictions or it might be political commentary. It might be endless declarations about Christian nationalism or perhaps critical race theory. But vain discussion tends to pat your tribe on the back And fail to see how Scripture confronts you, but merely say how Scripture is there to confront the other guys. That's one way to know I'm in vain discussion. If I'm not seeing how the Scripture confronts me in this conversation, I'm likely in vain discussion. 
And one of the things that Paul says is these guys desired to be teachers of the law. They seem so confident. They seem like Old Testament scholars. It's a reminder that anyone can quote a Bible verse, and every heretic has their Bible verse. So just because somebody attaches a cross-reference at the end of a sentence doesn't mean this is actually leading to fruitful discussion or a God-honoring use of time. Vain discussion looks promising on the front end, though, doesn't it? Nobody would get pulled into it if it didn't look promising on the front end. It's like, oh, this is the new thing to chase after. Yeah, I was uh, preparing this week, and, and I was reminded of last Sunday, I was watching the, the Colts game with my daughter, Tessa, and one of the sports betting commercials came up, and it said, if you bet $5, they'll give you 200 And she looked at me, and she said, Dad, how does that work? <laughs> well, that's a valid question, T. And I said, here's what they know. They know that if they can get you in with five bucks, that's going to look good, and you're going to get sucked in, and they can give you 200 and the house is still going to win. They know that in the long run, you'll get pulled into this, and it's going to snowball, and you're not going to be able to get out. That's how vain discussion works. At the beginning, it looks good. It's like, oh, I can dabble in that. That's not big, that big of a deal. It's kind of a sidebar issue, but it's not going to pull me in. And Paul says, no, be very wary of vain discussion, because you get pulled in, you get tangled up, and you swerve from love. You swerve from a, uh, a pure, con- or pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. You get pulled away from all of those things, when you're not on the main thing of who Jesus is and how he's called us to make disciples. Maybe a question you want to ask yourself, you're wondering, am I in the middle of vain discussion here? Is this what this is talking about? And you could simply ask, does this discussion I'm in, does it help me grow in love for God and love for my neighbor? Does this discussion I'm in, does it help me to make disciples? Guys, a lot of times vain discussion is just being concerned with the wrong things. It's not necessarily sinful things you're talking about. It's just a concern for the wrong things. The famous evangelist Dwight Moody said it this way. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And sometimes people who desire to be teachers of the law and are so confident about the theological assertions they make can dominate an argument that maybe wasn't even an argument we were supposed to be having in the first place. Is this growing my love for God and others and helping me to make disciples? Friends, there are ditches everywhere for us and social media isn't helping. Let's be honest about this. But what wise disciples do is they keep their eyes open. They see ditches. They see the opportunity for vain discussion and they avoid them because they know God has called them to something different. Discipleship fundamental number three, disciples avoid ditches. This brings us to our fourth fundamental. Fourth fundamental, disciples value the law. Disciples value the law. Verses 8 through 10, take a look back at 1 Timothy 1 with me. Here's what we read. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, hear the logic of the text, how this has flown throughout the passage 
It's as if Paul is anticipating the question. If these dudes are using the Old Testament to get us off track, then should we just dump the Old Testament? Should we just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and focus on the teachings of Jesus instead? And he says, no, that's not what I'm saying. The law is good so long as you use it lawfully, so long as you use it properly. The key question then is, what does it mean to use the law properly? What does it mean to use the law lawfully? And this is a question we have to have a really strong answer to. And at a starter base level, this is just fundamentals of, of Bible study. You start with, how do I understand what the Bible says? How do I interpret the Bible? Through context and word study. That's your two tools. Like, you need a, a hammer and a screwdriver, you need context and word study right from the beginning. And so you say, what does this passage mean? Well, I'm going to look in the immediate verses around the immediate sentences around, the immediate paragraphs around, and see what the context tells me. Sometimes you're going to zoom all the way out and see how something in the other testament interprets that. So when we were preaching through Genesis, there were times where Jesus would pick up a teaching from Genesis, and he would quote it, and we would say, oh, the teaching of Jesus helps us to understand what that meant, the very broad context of the entire Bible. So from a context standpoint, it's like we're, we're using a telescope, zooming in, zooming out, to see what does the context tell us. That's a critical tool for using the law lawfully, properly, but also word study, to look at what do the actual words mean in the original language. Oftentimes, when it gets translated into English or a different language, the word doesn't perfectly translate over, and so hey, what does that actually mean? Why does it say it that way? It's helpful to go back and look at the original, the that jargon phrase, lost in translation, exists for a reason. Sometimes that's challenging. So you go back and say, what do the words actually mean? What that means then is by looking at context word study, we're understanding that the, to use the law lawfully is to recognize its original meaning first. It means we need to be incredibly leery of interpretations that are based on reader response. When you hear things like, well, I read this and it makes me think of this. Well, I read this verse and it reminds me of a time when this happened. Be cautious there. Because the objective meaning of a passage must be determined before it can be applied. We can't just jump to reflection of this is what it makes me think of. And this can be hard work. It can be slow work. It might mean we can't use some verses the way we want to use them. But remember, guys, the point is not to conform the Bible to our lives, but to conform our lives to the Bible. Commentator Denny Burke on, on this passage said it this way. He said, the proper way to read the text is implied by the nature of the text itself. One must use the law lawfully. Proper interpretation, therefore, must be guided by properties within the text. To use the law lawfully, then, is to read it as it was meant to be read. And the reason I point that out is because the road to false doctrine is paved with well-meaning Christians who get comfortable making the text say anything they want. It doesn't start with heretical teaching. That's never where it starts. But when you get comfortable not asking what does the text actually say and what does the text actually mean, 
then you open up a whole host of doors to directions you don't want to go and shouldn't go. So Paul says you've got to use the law lawfully. That's part of what it means to value the law. But he goes on to build out the case for the goodness of the law. And here he's not talking just general laws, civil laws, anything like that. No, he's saying specifically the goodness of the Old Testament law. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to show its purpose and give some examples. So look back at verse 9 with me. See him doing this. Hear the purpose of the law and then some examples. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he goes on to list several examples of ungodly behavior. He says the law is given, the purpose of it is for sinners. It's for people like me and people like you. And what is the purpose of the law? Well, theologians historically have talked about it in three ways. If you can think of images, I think that's helpful. Here's the first way that the law is good for sinners. It serves as a mirror. So you hold up a mirror and you see yourself. The purpose of the law is so you'll hold it up, you'll look at it, and it'll point back at you and say, actually, I didn't meet what the law said I was supposed to do. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I feel like I'm better than the guy next to me, but compared to God's law, I'm not hitting a home run here. That's the first purpose. And the second purpose is that of a bridle. A bridle on a horse, it pulls the horse back a little bit. God's law is given as a bridle on society at large to restrain sin. As a horse bridle restrains the horse from going the wrong direction, God's law is given as a bridle to restrain us from going the wrong direction. And the third purpose of the law is that of a flashlight. That of a flashlight, it points ahead where to go. Of course, pointing ultimately to Christ, the one who would perfectly fulfill the law, and say, how do you know what the, the real thing looks like? But also for our guidance in daily living, as we're wandering around at times in darkness, we're wondering, what am I supposed to do? You have a flashlight in God's law guiding your passing. Here's where you're to go. Don't step there. Do step there. This is for your good. I remember being at church camp when I was in the ninth grade, and we went on a wilderness camp. And I don't like the wilderness, and I don't like camping. But I somehow got talked into this deal by my, some of my friends. And I didn't realize how dark it was at 11 o'clock at night. I hadn't ever been outside, like, in the woods woods like that before. And I realized very quickly when you're trying to get from the woods to the porta potties that a flashlight is a huge gift. It helps you get where you're trying to go. And God's law serves as a flashlight to help us see where we're supposed to go. The right use of the law, then, is three things. A mirror to help us see we don't measure up, a bridle to restrain sin, and a flashlight to tell us where we need to go and point us to the one who perfectly kept the law, Jesus Christ himself. So when Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, the law was our guardian to lead us to Christ, this is what he's saying. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was our tutor that leads us to Christ, showing that we didn't keep the law, but he did, and helping us to follow him. And the logic of this passage, Paul's saying, now you see the true purpose of the law, guys. It's for you to see that you need a Savior and who the Savior is. The purpose of the law isn't for your stupid discussions you're having on the side. <laughs> That's not what it's for. If it's not helping you to see how you're a sinner and you need Jesus and helping you lead others to see how they need Jesus, you're living in vain discussion. You see how the logic of all of that begins to fit together. 
And Paul lists out some examples here. Notice he's not just picking on some bad sins so that he could say that some people are worse than others. That that's not what Paul is doing because just a few verses later in verse 15, he would say, actually, I'm the chief of sinners. I think I'm the worst sinner of all of them. So Paul's not singling people out and be like, oh yeah, you guys are like, tisk task, you're the really bad ones. He's like, no, I think I'm the worst of all. He's just giving kind of a, a representative list here. And he's actually tracking through the Ten Commandments. Uh, some commentators I read thought they could see all ten of the commandments in this list. I don't know that I saw that, but I tell you, I pretty clearly see numbers five through nine. Just look back at your copy of God's Word. This is verses nine or ten. Uh, he says, those who strike their uh, parents, that's commandment five. Number six, murders. Number seven, sexual immorality. Number eight, those who steal. Number nine, those who bear false witness. You see him just tracking right through the commandments, saying, guys, here are examples of those who break the commandments of what it means to love your neighbor. The law is good because it reminds us of our need for Christ and points us to Christ. Disciples must value the law. So practically speaking, you're saying, Justin, okay, I, I, I get the idea of kind of what's being said here, but practically, what does it look like for me this week to value the law as a disciple? What does that look like? Well, as a starting point, let me suggest this. Don't restrict your Bible reading just to the epistles because they're easier to understand. Now, we, we took a long time to preach through the book of Genesis, but maybe you'd be wise to go back and reread the book of Genesis again. Maybe you can go back to the book of Exodus but don't restrict it just to the easy parts. Value the whole thing as the inspired word of God. It's all useful for building up the believer, edifying the believer, so that you may be equipped for every good work. It's all given for that reason. That's an entry point. And if you want to go next level, let me just give you a challenge. This, this might be fun for some of you to do together. My friend Drew Hunter is a teaching pastor over at Zionsville Fellowship. And a month ago, Drew started a series through the book of Leviticus. That guy has guts. But Drew is a really good preacher, and I think you might be edified by during the week listening to his sermons on the book of Leviticus, and maybe listening with another brother or sister and seeing how you're edified and you learn to value the law in different ways. Now, that may not be your cup of tea. That's okay. There's lots of ways you can value the law, but all disciples must value the law. Paul says this is absolutely critical. Let's move to our fifth and final fundamental. Disciples delight in the gospel. Disciples delight in the gospel. We're looking at verse 11 right here. Verse 11. Look back at your copy of God's word. Here's what Paul says. This is all in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, you read this and you recognize Paul can't get very far at all in his letters without coming back to the gospel, can he? He just simply can't do it. In Paul's writing, the gospel is like his morning coffee. He just can't get going without coming back to it. It's almost like, you know when you're in elementary school or middle school or high school and you start to like a boy or a girl and you start to notice them all the time and whatever room you're in, you know where they're at in that room. You remember that? They're never far from your mind. That's how the gospel is for Paul. Never far from his mind. He might be doing other things. He might be taking a biology test. He might be mowing the grass. He might be taking his kids to go do something fun. 
Who knows what he's doing, but the gospel is never far from his mind. In fact, this word gospel shows up more than 60 times in the writings of Paul. 60 times. Gospel simply means this, good news. Good news. That might be contrasted from good advice. And maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. You need to understand this is a critical difference, that the gospel is good news, not good advice, because most world religions preach a message of good advice. Here's what it means to be moral. Here's how you're supposed to live. You follow these rules. You can earn the pleasure of God. And if you follow enough of them, hopefully secure your spot in heaven. That's absolutely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, no, it's not just good advice. I'm bringing good news that something has been accomplished, that I have made a way that you can be with God. Think of it as as an investment strategy. Good advice says, here's a stock that's going to go up. It's good advice that you put your money here. And if you obey these things, it might turn out well for you. Good news says something totally different. It says, your rich uncle died, and here's a boatload of cash in your bank account. It is secure. It is done. It's all yours right now. And for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins, you have an eternal wealth in heaven that is secured and can never be lost because Jesus came and lived a perfect life on this earth, died his death on the cross, rose from the dead to secure all of it so that it can be yours. He's not giving you just good advice. Here's how you're supposed to live. He's bringing you good news that you can have an eternal hope of heaven. That's the gospel that Paul's excited about. And notice this. It's not just central to his writings, right? I said 60 times he uses it. It's always on his mind. He keeps writing it down. It's central to his living as well. Acts 20, 24. This is as Paul is departing from Ephesus. Listen to what Paul says. My only aim... That's a strong start, isn't it? My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. In his living, Paul says, this is my only aim, my only ambition, to love the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. It's like a dad who invests over and over and over in seeing his kids succeed. And when they finally succeed and they get the job they wanted, the dad can't stop talking about it. Have you ever ever talked to a dad like that? My boy, my boy, he got into this school and he studied and he studied and he got to the top of his class and he got the job at this firm he wanted. And he worked hard and he got promoted and now he's got the corner office with the big window and all these employees reporting to him. Can I tell you what he makes? You've been around dads like that, right? Their aim, their ambition is to see their kids spread their wings and fly. And they're so excited, they can't shut up about it. It sometimes gets a little bit annoying. And it's okay because it's beautiful to see their love for their children. And Paul says, that's me. I love the gospel. I love what it's done in my life. I love how it changes your life. I can't wait to tell you more about it. And if you get a little annoyed because I keep talking about it, it's okay. Because it's absolutely beautiful to see what Jesus Christ has done for me and can do for you as well. Christian, is this you? Does this describe your life? Is this how you love the gospel? Or is the gospel in your life more like a tomato on a burger? A nice add-on, maybe adds a little flavor here and there, but not essential. We wouldn't want to think of it that way. 
But sometimes I fear that does become reality for us. You see, this last point isn't one about denying the gospel. It's not one about false doctrine. It's a point of having wonder over the gospel, wonder at the mercies of God that are new every morning, wonder at the grace of God that he would choose to use someone as messed up as me and use people as messed up as you. It's wonder at the love of God that he would actually send his only son to suffer and die for us. I wonder in a moment we're going to sing the song, uh, His Mercy is More. And I wonder in your heart, not necessarily your words, in your heart, does it just resound out what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, unknowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Is that what your heart loves to sing? Or does your heart kind of sit there and, and, and murmur? Maybe you mouth the words. Hands in pockets. Can we go yet? I'm not chiding anybody for not singing loudly enough. I'm asking what's the condition of your heart and what's the delight you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, disciples delight in the gospel it's a core fundamental of following Jesus that drives all the rest. And we understand here at Parkside, as we seek to build a culture of discipleship, we celebrate this as the core fundamental. And we recognize that day after day after day, we continually remind ourselves of the beauty of the gospel. That's where we start, and that's where we end, and that's how we continue. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you would come to earth, love us, die for us, rise again, and promise to return. We're so thankful for your Holy Spirit you've sent as a sustaining presence. We ask you to work in our lives. Lord, I ask as we look at these fundamentals of discipleship that you would help us to assess where by your grace perhaps we've been strong and should press on, and where perhaps we, we've lost sight of things and we need to, to narrow our focus, keep our eyes fixed on what you've called us to. And we pray you would root us in your love, build us up in your love, ground us in your love, and send us out by your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.